I'm uh, the founder of the Climate Outreach Information Network. So that's a charity based in Oxford, although we have people working around the country. And we specialize in communications um, and public engagement uh, with a first charity actually formed in Britain solely with the purpose of working on communication of climate change. Um, and we are most interested in the, the, the tricky areas. How, how do we talk about climate change with people who are reluctant to accept it, who are not within the normal environmental uh, environmentalist community, um, particularly people who maybe have very different politics from many environmentalists. Uh, we're very interested in people uh, who are conservatives. Um, and we have done a lot of our work in trying to make a bridge between different um, different worldviews and values. So we do a lot of work, for example, with human rights and refugee organizations or with trades unions or now with conservatives or we've done work with Rotary Club and um, all kinds of groups which have their own ideas about the world and their own values. Trying to find how we can match up the science against their concerns. So I was wanted to start just with a little a little kind of anecdote to get your to get your thoughts on. I, I went to Dawlish the other day where the railway line was washed into the sea recently and the town took a complete pasting and and I, I met an old old man there who'd lived in Dawlish for many years and we sat and looked out over the town together and I said to him, um, he, I asked him about the storm. He said, worst storm I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. I said, so do you make any link between what you, what you saw that, that night and, and climate change? He said, oh, I don't believe in climate change. Right. And I said, he said, do you? I said, I do very much so. He said, um, uh, he said, well, I do. He said, I do believe that since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, We've poured uh, huge amounts of gases and uh, pollutants into the atmosphere, and that, that <laughs> and that that has changed the climate. But I don't believe in climate change. Yeah, that's very interesting. Can you explain it? that? You know, I can I can counter that with another quote, Rob, which um, I, uh, I I have a I have a, a book coming along later this year on the psychology of climate change, and. Um, I started with a quote from uh, Leon Frankfurt, who was a high, a Supreme Court judge in the US, um, who was uh, given a presentation by a man who had seen firsthand had seen the clearing of the Warsaw Ghetto during by the Nazis during the Second World War and the herding of Jews into concentration camps, and uh, he reported all of this to um, Judge Frankfurt, who was a Jew himself, and Frankfurt said, um, he said, um, I cannot believe you. And so the guy said, are you crazy? You can't believe this man. He's got his eyewitness testimony. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not saying the man's lying. I said, I simply cannot believe him. And these are different things. Mm. This is kind of interesting from the Supreme Court judge. And I think that, and I think that like what your, what your guy in Dawlish is doing the same thing. But he's saying two things. He's saying that he can, he can, he can accept the the abstract sense of it but he cannot accept or believe in the um the moral or personal the sort of emotional implications of it in other words when he when he sees the destruction which is that knowledge manifested um that he uh but he can't accept it and he can quite i, I think we can do this psychologically we can do this very well quite consciously but there are things that we know and if we're asked about we'll say yeah i know that but we hold back from accepting or recognizing that belief. 
Um, and did you think there's an element to it as well, which is somehow just even by now the words climate change have become so sort of loaded that actually somebody who's uh, very conservative, even though they may ag agree with climate change, as soon as they use the words climate change, somehow they feel they put themselves in a box with that lot. A absolutely. Um, it's, it's very clear that that happens. Um, in, uh, it's... There are, uh, in cognitive linguistics, of course, they, they, they talk about the language of framing, which is a lot of people are now familiar with. And within the language of, uh, or within a terminology of framing, you understand that certain words become what we could call frames. That's to say that when the words are used, they, they bring into play a whole very wide range of values and attitudes and assumptions and um, cultural shape and climate change is definitely that um, as is global warming of course which is a, a parallel phrase but that actually has its own has its own slightly different set of meaning and um, um, yes it's very uh, it's very clear that for many people particularly um, people who are conservative particularly people who are older um, they can accept the content of climate science um, many of the people who actually will say they don't believe in climate change are well educated scientifically, um, but they will not accept the, uh, the, the full meaning of it. When there's a really big uh, climate uh, or big extreme weather event like mm -hmm. Hurricane Sandy or what we've seen here over the last few weeks, often you, you hear people saying, you know, what, what will it take to make people realise uh, that climate change is happening, but your your work suggests that that's that that's really the wrong question, isn't it? No, I think it's very much the right question. Let's let's go back a step and say uh, what if a what if a process is by which we form socially held belief, um, and I'm aware that by the way that that word belief is a dangerous word. You you've used it already in our conversation. Um, let's just say that the word belief is itself a frame, mm. that when people say I believe or don't believe, that belief is a word which has an association with religious belief or faith. Yeah. So let's recognize that there is a process of belief which is happening here, but let's call it conviction. That's the word I prefer to use. So we could say, what is the process by which people form their convictions? Uh, there are a lot of things that we know, but we're not entirely convinced of them when we, we sort of hold that information at bay. Um, now, information is a primary cause of that, uh, is, is a primary source of that, and scientific information, of course, is a, is, is a very important direction towards conviction, but really the convictions are formed by the people around us. Um, there's, there's, let's just say that there is a truth which is a, an objective truth, which might be formed by the data. And then there is a social truth or a social fact. And but we depend on both when we form our convictions. So we can say that it's quite possible for people like your, your guy in Dawlish to accept the, uh, the scientific fact, but not to accept the social fact. Um, we need to put the two together. That means, therefore, that what it makes it possible for people to accept these things is very clear evidence of a social fact. That's to say that uh, the people around them, the people they know in their own networks and their family, their friends, their community are actively seen to hold this attitude and conviction. Um, 
Now, the problem we have with climate change is that they don't. Some people actively refute it. And actually, many people don't hold it at all. They, they, won't, uh, they won't publicly accept it. They won't talk about it. Um, we get into a difficult situation where in opinion polls, we ask people, do you believe in climate change? Um, or uh, we also have opinion polls saying, do you think that the extreme weather is related to climate change? And by and large, you'll find that the majority of people will say yes on both counts. The problem is, of course, that that's the answer that they give when they're asked by someone in the street. That does not mean that that is a conviction that they wear and share openly within uh, within their peer groups. Mm. And so the answer to your question is, well, how do we do it? It's, well, we have to get people talking about it and talking about, talking about it as a social fact, something that is real within uh, within socially held conviction, something which is really out there and talked about in the same way that um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, the economy is talked about. It is something which people openly have views on. And those views can be um, contra, you know, those can be uh, conflicting views too. There's nothing wrong with having a, not ideal, but there's nothing wrong with having a situation where you have people saying, well, I accept this or I don't accept this. I think the big danger is that that conversation doesn't happen at all. And so in the absence of that, it just becomes a set of data or informational facts where people can keep squirreled away in their um, intellectual part of their brain without it infecting their emotional part, which is the part which makes them want to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, incidentally on that, of course, just to point out, again, going back to your guy in Dawlish, we can do that because we do have separate parts to our brain that perform in different ways. We have parallel processes within our brains and one process deals with the, the analysis of data and the other deals with the um, emotional implications of data and the sense of threat and that these processes work in parallel and unfortunately can be kept quite separate and when we receive our information from a scientific source we can actively collude with those different processes by making sure that we keep it over there in that scientific part where we can go well that's interesting and not allow it to come over into our emotional social side which might compel us to take action and obviously the answer to how we get people to take action is we have to get it to cross over. Um, in the paper that you that you just published, you wrote um, uh, you wrote about how victims of extreme weather episodes are not necessarily more likely to associate those with climate change than non-victims. Why is that? What's the psychology of that? Um, well, let's just say that let's just say that the 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 basis for doing that is both uh, some social research, although this is a relatively uh, new area for social research, but also personal experience of going and um, going and talking to people. I did a, a string of interviews, over 20 interviews, in um, two areas in America that have been severely affected by climate change. One was um, in Bastrop in Texas, which had had um, a combination of extreme drought followed by um, the most devastating wildfires in Texan history. I mean, devastating by a tenfold order of magnitude compared to anything previous. Um, and then I did a string of interviews up and down uh, the coast of New Jersey, where um, there's astonishing levels of damage from Sandy. I mean, I was there six months after, and still 
whole towns just smashed to uh, you know matchsticks. I mean, incredible. Um, so interviewing people there, it was very interesting that people would not necessarily make the connection. Right? I think there's a I, and 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 strange also if you if you think well, hang on. This is what scientists have been talking about for 20 years. So for 20 years, scientists have been saying that climate change will bring uh, more severe weather events, uh, possibly more and severe storms, although uh, there's a bit of uncertainty around that, certainly more severe droughts and wildfires. And so when something comes along, which is off the scale in terms of your previous experience, which conforms to that, you would think that you would at least pay some heed to it. And I think what is interesting is not just that people don't necessarily accept it, but they don't even talk about it. There is an utter absence of conversation in these areas about whether what they've experienced is connected to climate change. So even so, whether people accept it's uh, climate change or not, they're not talking about it with each other. Um, the, the reason for this is is um, is complex, and I have to say is. That is a big question. It's, it's one we need to answer. I, I have my theories. Um, one thing that's clear is that um, when people go through a, a major extreme weather event, they, it brings them together, um, especially if it's a, a short-lived one. If, if it's a long-lived, protracted one, like a major drought, it can wear people down. But if it's a single one, like Hurricane Sandy or flooding and so on, um, people people often feel a very strong sense of social unity, um, and especially in our rather fragmented communities, that can be very um, validating for people. Um, that means that they concentrate on things which bring them together, so their shared values, um, their sense of common identity, and it also means that they're very wary of everything which might potentially draw them apart. So climate change is that kind of issue. I'd say even more in the States from here. It's the kind of thing that people avoid talking about within their own families because they know that their uncle Bob is a climate skeptic and they don't want to have a row, <laughs> you know, over, over the Christmas pudding. And it's that kind of thing. So, so people, I think people actively try and not talk about it. But there's another thing as well, which is if you think about it, if you're caught in a major event, if your house has been flooded, you have major concerns on with just clearing it out, um, you know, rebuilding it, especially if your house is burnt down or been smashed apart, um, rebuilding your life. So you have immediate short-term concerns which push out the longer-term ones. And then let's face it, if you are making the decision to invest again in your life, to rebuild your life, the last thing you want to consider is the possibility that this is the start of a major shift that will bring not just more of these events, but even more intense ones. I mean, who on earth wants to hear that? And I think that there's real danger that when people reinvest in their lives, they, um, they are reinvesting in a narrative that, that things are normal and that this was a freak accident and that things will go back to the way that they were before. So in other words, through their action and their spending um, and their desire to believe, people become over-optimistic about the future and what might happen. So we know very well that people who have been through um, personal accidents often come out with a, uh, a reinforced sense of their own immunity and a very much reduced 
uh, artificially reduced sense of a probability of something happening again. Um, that's entirely possible with these major events, but that is compounded by their refusal to accept that actually the odds are shifting. So not only are people not prepared to accept that this is something which might come again, but they're certainly unwilling to accept that the odds are shifting such that these events will be happening more and more. And uh, so, yeah. So if people uh, who are listening to this who uh, are involved with, with transition groups in places that have been affected by the extreme weather recently, the last thing they want is to come across with any kind of told you so sort of uh, uh, vibe to it. What's the most skillful way to introduce the possibility to people or is it just best not to go there really? I think that's the, I think that's the key question, Rob. I think we, the temptation is not to go there. The temptation, which I think is reinforced quite strongly through our social interactions is that it is inappropriate to talk about climate change with people who have been um, devastated by an extreme weather event. Um, and I remember just through um, Facebook, my wife putting out some um, comments um, around flooding or around Hurricane Sandy and getting very, uh, very, very clear signals from her Facebook friends that it was not appropriate, and, but somehow it's almost um, exploitative to talk about that. This is not the right time. <laughs> the question is, of course, if it's not the right time now, well, when is the right time exactly? Um, now, we, therefore, yes, the temptation is not to talk about it at all. I think we need to resist that temptation. But I think the first thing to say is we need to tread very, very carefully here. You know, these emotions are raw and, uh, and people are very upset. So we need to find a, a way of doing it. I, I would suggest to people that they just... They try it out carefully and compare notes, and but we use this experience of what's happened um, over this winter as a way to test things out, and hopefully, but you know, we at Coin can work with you and you know the transition groups to try out and share our experience and and um, test in the real world what might work or not might not work. Um, the answer is we don't entirely know, but there are some uh, pointers. I think one of the things which we know does not work is to um, parachute into an affected community as a politically, um, ideologically motivated outsiders and try and make those links. So um, we strongly advise uh, environmental organizations, for example, to not do that, to resist the temptation to run broadcast campaigns saying, Da -da, it's climate change, we told you. Um, I think this is potentially very, um, potentially quite counterproductive. At a community level, like transition groups have, you, you're in a much stronger position because you are at least speaking from a shared position of experience. And I think that's very important. I think that um, the most trusted communicators will be people who are seen to be part of a community and people who have been themselves affected. Um, to say, well, this is, you know, I, and, and stressing that, putting it up front, saying, you know, I, talking about your own experience and what's happened. Um, I think one way to clearly do it, and this has been shown to work quite well in, uh, in the States, has been to talk about this within the adaptation 
uh, adaptation and resilience and preparedness agenda. So I think that transition is very much on the right line with this. Um, rather than saying it's climate change and it's our fault, I think people can I think people can make those connections themselves if they're willing to face it. I don't think we need to spell it out. But I think we can say um, we we need to recognize that uh, there is a change underway and that we need to pull together and be prepared for that to happen uh, increasingly in the future. How can we as a community be strong? Um, and I think also, of course, that because communities come together so strongly often around these events, we can um, we can validate our, ourselves and uh, we can feel good and recognize actually that there were things that we did in the course of these uh, events which are very positive, but they're signs that we are stronger than maybe we thought, that we, we can pull together in ways which are really worthwhile. Um, the act of putting together and the act of individual um, care and concern and heroism and altruism that people show in these is one of the things which builds barriers across political and social boundaries. So I think that's something to really put up front, say we did really well here. There was some really um, powerful, powerful things which happened in our community around this event, which showed how strong we are or how strong we can be. And let's, and let's recognize and prepare for stuff coming in the future. I think it's very important to resist the temptation towards the protection of the, the individual property on this. So there's a temptation with this to say, I'm protecting myself, I'm making my house, my, my house uh, floodproof. Obviously, people do that, and that's fine. But I think that the emphasis has to be on how we can uh, protect ourselves collectively. In other words, what can we do to pull together? Particularly, what can we do in the case of future events, recognizing that they might happen, to uh, protect the vulnerable? Uh, people who might be old, they might be disabled, it might be hard to get out of their homes. How can we have uh, um, pr protection uh, and services, community support services lined up for them? Maybe a kind of a um, you know, and a kind of like an emergency phone tree or a network which snaps into gear when it's needed. Um, because, I'm stressing that, because we know from the values work that has been done, particularly by people like Tom Crompton at WWF, who's done great work on this, but if we reinforce people's sense of collective and caring values, that we make people more willing to accept the fact that we need to pull together in the face of a common threat. In other words, through reinforcing our sense of um, pride and identity and caring for each other, we lay the foundation for being able to feed in those arguments about climate change. And just to end on this point, saying this is why I recognize that, this is why I'm, I'm stressing to, to start by talking about the positive experiences of how we pulled together. To say that uh, it's clear from a lot of research but people are far more receptive to challenging arguments like climate change if it's in a context where their values and their sense of their own identity has already been validated. Mm -hmm. So, um, but what they are not receptive to is a direct challenge that, that they fit, but therefore brings up all of their defenses about don't tell me what to do and who are you anyway and you're a hypocrite and all of that. It's been very interesting to see the the 
the response to Nigel Lawson's appearance on the radio and the kind of the how the sort of climate skeptics at a time when you thought they would really crawl off under a rock and take a long hard look at themselves have sort of actually been coming out and um, and talking about it and, and they're getting quite a lot of publicity over the last couple of weeks. And I read recently, there's a video I watched by uh, Naomi Oreskes, who wrote The Merchants, Merchant of Doubt. Oh, yeah. um, and she does an interview there with a guy called Nick Minchin, who's an Australian climate skeptic. And uh, there's a little bit, she, she says to him, it makes me wonder if the reason you want to reject the science is that it has consequences. It has consequences for us about how we live our lives, how we run our economy, what our taxation policies are. I think what you don't like are the implications, the political, social and economic implications. But what you've done a lot with a lot of other people is to say, let's shift the debate, let's argue about the science, let's keep the debate about the science going, because as long as we argue about the science, we don't get to the question of what that means for us politically socially and economically and we seem to at this time sort of how, how people have already still gone back to arguing about the science just seems just seems completely ridiculous is there any sense of, of, of how we input into that process to move it on more to the policy well this is a this is a broader question than just the floods isn't it yeah um you know we, we the, the, the the problem we always have with the floods is that um no, no scientist is ever going to be prepared to come out during the floods or even immediately or any climate uh, event immediately afterwards and say, aha, that's climate change. Although, of course, they should be saying, well, this is a pattern which is, you know, consistent with climate change. So this, this sense of um, uncertainty tends to sort of pervade the debate. Um, but, you know, I would go back again to what I was saying earlier about how various scientific factors or uh, and there is social, socially held facts. Um, and to say that if people in their own mind see that there is association between an extreme weather event and climate change, that becomes the fact that they hold. Similarly, if people in their own mind minds comes to think that um, all of the scientists are conspiring in order to get larger, fatter government grants for their research, which of course is this outrageous and ludicrous lie which is pervaded by some of these professional deniers um, they don't believe that and these views can become uh, deeply entrenched and very um, and very immovable but of course the thing which moves them is not arguing directly with them about is you know this is not true or this is the evidence but it's actually going back to that idea of socially constructed facts um, what will shift a climate change denier not the professional ones of course but the, the general public the people who are uncertain is for citing the evidence that people like themselves who share their values um, happen to believe in it and happen to accept it. And uh, the big problem we have, I think, in terms of the, the issue is that, yeah, Naomi is correct there, um, that many people of, especially of conservative or free market values, are deeply suspicious of the solutions. And of course, the people who are keenest on the solutions um, and, and therefore the ones who hold climate change most readily of people who are their sworn political enemies. And so the entire thing becomes polarized around political lines. The way to shift this is to have more and more people of um, conservative values being seen to openly hold onto the science and to say, yes, we want to be part of discussion and debate about what the solutions are, which I think might be a very useful debate. Um, there's nothing, by the way, intrinsically in conservatism that say that conservatives cannot um, make personal sacrifices or pull together in the face of a threat. 
In fact, you can better well believe that if uh, climate change is being caused by North Korea, that the Conservatives will be on the front line <laughs> saying we need to do whatever is necessary to stop this threat or, or anything similar. In fact, there's no doubt in my mind that if climate change was going to be caused by a meteorite, that, 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 that Conservatives would be right on top of it. There's nothing intrinsically in it. It's the way that these, uh, it's the way that these threats speak to people's world, world views. And even, and even the, the most hardcore libertarians, you know, going right back to the writings of Hayek after the Second World War, would recognize that you sometimes need to pull together and you need to maybe interfere with the free market in the interests of facing a collective threat. The question is, how does that threat come to be perceived? And again, I go back to that sense that threats are perceived not through the data, but through the public perception of it. Yeah? I will say something, by the way, about this whole um, climate change denial, thing, which I think Naomi is touching on there, which is important, is that... Um, People hold attitudes on climate change because of their values and their worldviews and their politics, um, not because they're necessarily bribed to do so. Um, there's a, a common view, especially amongst environmental campaigners, but all of this denial stuff is just some kind of huge public relations scam generated by fossil fuel money. And whilst it's certainly true that, there are, that uh, some of the oil companies have been utterly reprehensible for, for uh, funding what has sometimes been very professional misinformation campaigns. The reason that the vast majority of people do not believe in climate change is because it is a direct challenge to their sense of the world and how the world is, and because they personally really do not like or trust the people who seem to be most eagerly telling them about it. Um, and, but it's not just about corruption, it's about it's stuff which speaks very, very much to people's values. And, of course, the reality, which is that none of us really in our hearts want to accept that this thing is happening. Nobody really wants to believe it. So we're all very, very keen to find reasons that, um, to, to find reasons that it's not happening. And I'd say maybe for people who are conservative or for people who are doubtful of environmentalism, um, that's somewhat easier for them to do because they're starting from a position of being doubtful of the people telling them. So my last my last question is the theme that we're looking at this month is is living with climate change. What's your what's your sense of the next twenty years or so? What what's what, what's our experience of that going to be, both kind of in the outer world, but also for us internally? How, how are we going to experience that and process that? Do you think? I'm I'm fascinated by this question. I think that I don't think there's any clear direction. I think though that we can maybe predict that there are certain pathways. Um, one thing we know, as I as I said earlier, is that people do have a remarkable capacity to uh, to put on one side and to compartmentalize things they don't really want to deal with. And I think we have to recognize that this uh, skill is deeper than uh, we recognize. Those of us who work on climate change um, really like to believe that there is some uh, that there is some revelatory moment, there's a kind of like when lights go on in people's heads, that uh, there's some point where they read something or they hear something or, uh, you know, uh, you know, some major storm hits and they go, aha, yes, now I get it. Um, and for some people, there is. I, I think we should really be encouraging people to have that kind of moment. But I also think that 
it's pretty clear that people can keep that at bay for a very, very long time. And I hope, but I, I fear that that might be so long that people, uh, when they do realize what's going on, they go into a very different state. Um, so the pathways are that there is one path, well, and, and all of these are going to be fighting themselves out, by the way. It's not as if everybody follows one pathway. Um, different people are going to respond in different ways. So there's, there's clearly going to be one direction in which people just do not accept it. Not that they do not, not that they deny it. I will say there will be people, I think, right to the very end who deny stuff. But I think there's a more dangerous form, which is what people, uh, what the psycho uh, psychotherapists would call, that they disavow. So that they know it, but they don't know it. They keep it on one side. And I think we can therefore expect a continuation of what in coin we've been calling climate silence, this kind of condition of socially constructed silence where you don't talk about it. And but people roll their eyes and go, oh, there you go again, and this is so depressing, and and so on. Um, there are other forms of response where people, as a way of avoiding it, but they go deeper and deeper into avoidance processes. So I'm afraid, and I would be inclined to predict this, but there will be a tendency in the short term for people maybe to go deeper into consumption, um, to go deeper into short-term um you know, sort of pleasure activities, um, to have a bit of that sort of, well, live for today because you never know, you might get hit by a bus kind of attitude. Hmm. Um, anticipate that there will be a an ever-growing and ever more vocal group of people who say, no, wake up, and um, that I don't think that we can see any kind of real change on climate change without a very uh, strong and vocal popular movement. Um, and I... I'm reassured to see that that is starting to pick up weight. I think that that can grow. I think that there is evidence from the past that social movements and social change can happen extremely rapidly. I mean, we've just seen what's happened in Ukraine, for example. There's stuff flashing up all around the world. And this is clearly a time of um, major political tectonic shifts. <laughs> you know, this is, we've seen for the last few years that there have been, uh, you know, change coming from popular mass movements on a scale uh, which has been quite exceptional. So I'm feeling reasonably optimistic. But there are other paths too where people accept that there is a problem but go into um, quite kind of aberrant coping mechanisms. I, uh, one form of that, of course, is to actually seek to give power to people to make decisions on their behalf. And this is well supported historically that uh, we can always fear that uh, people will respond in the worst possible way. Um, unfortunately, it may be very well those people who for years have said, no, we don't want the government to interfere in our lives. But could just very readily switch over to a situation of, uh, of going into a kind of like a war mode and giving a great deal of power to governments to take control. Hmm. Um, there are other aberrant forms whereby people don't deal with the problem at all, but they process their sense of anxiety in other ways. For example, through conflict, through warfare, through scapegoating, um, through turning inwards. All of, these, all of these patterns have been mapped out for us by the ways that we've responded in the past to um, collective and personal conflicts. Um, and I think that it's our responsibility as social change activists, as, as I think we are, to, um, to look at and anticipate those and to really try and make sure that we 
steer this whole thing in a direction towards positive coping mechanisms um, where we recognize that we face up to things and deal with them. And but we also anticipate that we might go slipping off in any number of um, aberrant directions because climate change in the end is not one of those problems like North Korea, where you can say, okay, all we have to do is pull together and fight this thing because we are all participants in it. So we cannot objectify what goes on. We have to, you know, we, we have to find a way of pulling together. Um, I will say an answer to that, but therefore the solutions always lie in uh, ways of talking, ways of behaving would involve pulling people together, drawing people together rather than pushing people apart, which is, I think, something we need to be very careful with in um, climate change movements, that we always seek to try and build those movements across boundaries rather than on the basis of saying it's us versus you. Um, and um, and just to say, I think this is, there, there's, the wild cards, the things we don't know, is actually what is going to happen with the climate. We really don't know, um, and having spoken to a lot of, uh, of the kind of climate scientists on this, as you have, um, the overwhelming feeling is they don't really know what's going to happen when, uh, you know, as the, as the North Pole goes and that sort of huge reflective ice mirror disappears mm. we don't we don't know some of what's happened over this last winter really has people scratching their heads they can see how it's acting out but they can't they can't it's not really how they thought that things would work so we have got the uncertainty in this but things might move might move extremely extremely fast you know i i still i still remain i guess on this i still remain optimistic that this problem is hitting us at a time when we are exceptionally well-connected, uh, well-informed, well-educated, um, when there is an exceptional level of international cooperation. Um, and I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's exceptional. Mm. You know, we don't have a Cold War which is running at the moment, um, you know, despite all of these kind of like national uh you know, little national snipings. We do We do seem to have the capacity more than any time in the past to pull together. So I, I guess I'm reasonably optimistic this might pan out all right. But we, we're going to have to push it and prod it.